I'm Tavis Smiley. You're listening to KBLA Talk 1580, and we're glad about it. Our phone number, 1-800-920-1580. 1-800-920-1580. In this hour, acclaimed journalist and human rights advocate Goldie Taylor on her new book, The Love You Save, a memoir. The book takes a deep dive into the strictures of race, class, and gender in a post-Jim Crow America. And I'm delighted to have Goldie Taylor on this program. Goldie, how are you today? I'm good, Tavis. I'm delighted to be with you. It's an honor to have you on. Thank you for the opportunity, and I'm glad we got an hour. There's a whole lot in this memoir uh, that we're going to un- <laughs> unpack in this hour. We'll do the best we can to give readers um, a taste of what they're going to get when they crack the pages of The Love You Save, a memoir. Can't do justice to all you've written in 60 minutes, but let me do my best. Uh, let's start with this. Uh, I spent a great deal of time over the course of my life in East St. Louis. I I know it uh, rather well. Uh, One of my friends and perhaps the greatest, uh, certainly one of the greatest female athletes in the history of the world, Jackie Joyner-Kersey, hails from East St. Louis, Illinois. Uh, East St. Louis is just across the bridge from St. Louis, and East St. Louis happens to be in the state of Illinois. Uh, and uh, again, a lot of great people have come out of East St. Louis and um, Jackie Joyner Kersey, JJK, chief among them. So I spent time with her uh, and other friends who I know from East St. Louis. But it is an interesting place. And I don't usually use the word interesting. I hate that word. It's so nondescript. But I'm using it now, Goldie, because I don't want to color your judgment, uh, your characterization, right. your illustration of East St. Louis. So before we get to Aunt Gerald. And all the things in this story that I want to unpack with you in this hour. Uh, describe for me the setting, East St. Louis. You know, I once heard Senator Dick Durbin, whose family, by the way, is from East St. Louis. Mm-hmm. Uh, they immigrated here from Lithuania. And he once said that if you couldn't find a job in East St. Louis, you couldn't find a job anywhere. Mm. That used to be true. Today, it is very different. Today, it is everything wrong in America is wrong in East St. Louis. Mm. And my book is about how we got from there to here. It is more than a story about me as a young girl coming up, but how a city broke under the, under the weight of Jim Crow. Mm. Um, take me back to East St. Louis during your childhood. What was the city like then? So very early on in the early 70s, East St. Louis was still a fairly middle-class town, predominantly black, but we were working folk, doing working folk business and raising our children. But as time went along and the tax base began to erode, white flight and economic flight uh, took root, then you saw a breaking of our social structures. You know, the YMCA was closing down. Jackie Joyner Kersey was running track on the center track. Um, not clay, but cinder uh, in the in the soil. There were people like the insurance agency up in the corner that Reggie Hudlin's father owned. Uh, I think his mother still owns to this day. Mm-hmm. But the city was begin to break, beginning to break down. And you remember crack cocaine when it came across this country in the early '80s? It burned East St. Louis down to its hollows, and then came the violence. Mm-hmm. Our Community growing up was replete with casual violence, with uh, children being under and miseducated in warehousing schools, um, in, you know, of housing stock that was crumbling, people living in homes that should have been long since condemned housing and food instability. You know, everything you could think of 
was happening in East St. Louis as we were coming to grow. Mm-hmm. And we did all of that. You know, we lived out on 10th Street right near downtown in East St. Louis where my aunt and uncle uh, fought to survive in that environment and wanted their children and us to survive as well. Mm. Um, so now we've got a sense of the city in which you were growing up. Uh, you've referenced your aunt and uncle. Um, let me ask you to tell us about Aunt Gerald and what led to you uh, living with your auntie. You know, I think that's really what the story was about is you know, how it triggered it for me. I happened to be having a conversation with my young granddaughter who didn't want to sleep in her room. And I began to describe that I didn't have a room mm-hmm. you know, around her age and I didn't have a bed. I slept on my Aunt Gerald's floor. And as I began to think about that and how I got to her floor, how my mother took me to live with Geraldine and Ross in East St. Louis because she frankly had no one else to look after me while she worked late hours in the evening and overnight shift uh, in St. Louis. I had been raped when I was 11 years old by a boy in our neighborhood in St. Anne. My mother uh, decided that St. Anne was no longer a safe place for me. She decided it was no longer a safe place for her or for any of her children. And so she moved us. Um, she moved in uh, with a friend in O'Fallon, Illinois, and I moved in with my aunt and uncle in East St. Louis. There I would have somebody at least 24-7 to look after me as I healed. Hmm. In that moment, um, although you'd been raped and you needed some healing, did you feel that your mother's decision to move you in with your aunt and uncle um, was her abandoning you? Then that is exactly how I saw it. You know, I am then a 12-year-old girl who is without her father. My father had been murdered when I was five. I was without my older siblings who were seven and nine years older. They were out seeing the world on their own. And now without my mother. And so my entire family structure had been torn down around me, and I was living now in East St. Louis, in a place that, you know, I had lived before that but was foreign to me now, culturally foreign to me. Schools were foreign to me. And without all the social connections and uh, entrapments that a 12-year-old girl would have. And so I did feel abandoned. I felt left and lost. I think I say in the book, as I feel now, I felt like I belonged nowhere and to nobody. Mm. Um, she's now 12. She's been raped at the age of 11. She's been, uh, to her mind, abandoned by her mother, sent to live with her aunt Gerald, uncle Ross across the bridge, uh, in East St. Louis, Illinois. And when we come forward, we will continue this conversation with, uh, the author Goldie Taylor, um, about how she navigates at such a young age, the pain and anguish of all that she is enduring. Her book is uh, out now. It's called The Love You Save, a memoir. Goldie Taylor is on KBLA Talk 1580. Let's unpack a little bit more with Tavis Smiley. The conversation continues right now. Right now. Let's right now. unpack right now. a little bit more with Goldie Taylor, author of the book, The Love You Save, a memoir. Uh, I happen to know that Goldie Taylor, uh, because, uh, let me back up, this radio station is flagshipped in Los Angeles, but heard across the nation. Um, Goldie is appearing tonight at the Harvard Bookstore, so if you're anywhere near Harvard, <laughs> she's at the Harvard Bookstore tonight. And for those who are in Los Angeles, I can tell you right now before we continue our conversation, uh, on April 22nd, she appears at the L.A. Uh, Festival of Books. So she'll be here in L.A at the Festival of Books on the 22nd of April. Put that on your calendar now because I can assure you as we move through this conversation, you'll want to make sure you get a chance to uh, 
engage her a bit more uh, at the Festival of Books here in L.A. on the 22nd. But again, she appears tonight uh, at the bookstore in Harvard, the Harvard bookstore. Um, Gordy, before I jump back into the story, um, the cover photo on this book. Sure. Um, for those who are listening right now and can access your phone or computer, just type in The Love You Save, a memoir. The Love You Save, a memoir. And you'll understand why I'm asking her about the cover photo on this book. Tell me about this precious photo on the cover of this text. You know, that is my mother's favorite photograph of me. Mm-hmm. And it is in a 8 by 10 frame on my dresser today. But when I look at that photograph, I know exactly who was in the yard that day. I was sitting on my aunt Gerald and Uncle Ross's front porch in East St. Louis. I was just over a year old, um, as evidenced by my sandy blonde hair, (laughs) that my uncle was painting the house that day. And an older cousin, Bernadette, took that photograph. What I do know about that day is that my mother wasn't present, that she was living in Chicago, um, running away from my father, who had been horribly abusive. He had pushed her face through a plate glass window. And in an effort to get away, she moved to Chicago and left her children at my aunt's home while we were in hiding. My father did not know that we were there. Um, She was afraid that he would come to snatch us away. Um, I had long thought in my life that I had gone, I had assumed that as a baby, Um, that I had gone to Chicago with my mother. But seeing that picture the way I see it today, I knew that I had been living with Aunt Gerald and Uncle Ross on and off since I was around seven or eight months years old. Mm. Seven or eight months old. And so, yeah, that picture for me is about um, where is my mother now? Mm. Um, Before I go to Aunt Gerald, um, tell me... um about your mother you we've we've referenced her in in the context of what we're talking about but tell me more expressly um detail about your mother tell me about about your mom you know my mother was a survivalist she would do whatever it took to make certain that her children were fed clothes she's like every other black mother you run into She worked two, three jobs at a time to keep a roof over our heads. And sometimes if it meant she had to leave us and care for sister, then she would. She always came back. She put her life together and come back. She prided herself on the ability to raise neat and orderly children and that um, we would, um, you know, feel her love no matter how far away she was. She taught us. You know, like I said, to go to work every day, to to invest in ourselves, in education, there was nothing more important than that, really, for us. But my mother was striving. There were things she wanted to leave behind. She wanted to leave the world behind, the one that saw my father be murdered, that uh, there is today no man in our family who was born, alive today, who was born before 1986. My mother was trying to shield us from all of that. And so... Uh, she put nickels together and would rent a house in another neighborhood or rent a house in that neighborhood, put together enough money to put a little down payment on a house here. But my mother spent her life running. Mm. Um, running from? Running from the casual violence that we saw happening all around us in our neighborhoods, the pathologies that she didn't want to touch us, running from broken schools. Like I said, running from the streets that swallowed my father and later my brothers. Um, she was scared for us. 
it wasn't that she was trying to invest us in a way that she thought we could thrive. She simply needed us to survive. My mother was concerned only about today and the next day and whether her children would make it home safely. Mm. How does that, <clears throat> a broad question here, Goldie, how does that, uh, how does that impact the quality of one's life when one is always on the run? Then there is no stability. Mm-hmm. The stability that you seek is fleeting. Mm-hmm. Then uh, there is no time to stop for the hug or I love you. There is no time to stop to say, did you get your homework done tonight? Or what do you want to be when you grow up? Let's think about college. There is no time to focus on those things when you're only focused on whether or not, you know, your children can make it a few blocks home from school in time. And so it was tough, I know, for her and seeing it now through the eyes of now being a parent. I'm a parent of now three children who are now all in their 30s and three grandchildren. Mm -hmm. My mother wanted me to see this day. And she knew that the only way to do that um, was to push in the ways that she did. Uh, She taught us honesty, financial efficacy, pay every bill on time, uh, be diligent in your duties. She wanted us to be so good at everything that we could not be denied. A horrible stress on a child who is at home fending for themselves. For all the for the for all the trauma, uh, Goldie, and the drama that your mother had to endure, um, living a life on the run, it uh, it's clear to me, and I'm certain it's clear to listeners, and will be further clear to readers when they get your book, "The Love You Save," a memoir, that you still have the the utmost respect, um, a deep and an abiding love. I can hear it coming through my headphones for your mother. Never mind again the trauma and the drama. You still love your mama. No question about it. My mother is my best friend. And, you know, over these last few years, as we talked about the writing of this book and the telling of the story, there was never any hesitation from my mother. She said, I need you to write everything down. Leave nothing out. And I said, Mom, I just want to give everybody context. If Aunt Gerald was angry or mean, I needed people to know why. I needed to know, you know, I needed people to know why my grandmother was so genteel. You know, for instance, I need to know them to know why my uncle would hang that American flag outside his house on the 4th of July, even though the world around him, he was living on a contract mortgage because he couldn't get a mortgage as a veteran uh, because he wasn't white mm-hmm. in our neighborhood. I needed people to know the context in which we came to grow. When you get that context, there is nothing but respect that you can come away with for my mother and for the people raised us given their circumstances yep. i'm going to aunt gerald in just a second here um but um tell me how your relationship with your mother um has defined itself over the years were there ebbs and flows in the relationship oh certainly there were times of distrust there were times that i didn't trust that she was coming back and when she did i didn't trust that she was staying mm-hmm. but you know as my grandmother said and you know i quote her in the book your mama ain't never left you. Um, you know, even though she is not here mm-hmm. presently, you know, love doesn't come wrapped up and pretty in boxes the way we always think it should. Um, but you're here and we're caring for you in your mother's stead because that's the respect that we have for her in the book that she's trying to do for you. It did grow distrustful over the years. And I think my high school years really told the tale of, you know, uh, I have become unmoored, truly. It didn't come until 
I was grown and had my own children to recognize what those struggles were really like for her. Mm. I know that despite, you know, everything that we went through, for instance, our lights never went off. Our lights were never cut off. I don't know if people know about not being able to pay the light bill on mm-hmm. time mm-hmm. and the electric man coming out to cut you off at the <laughs> meter. Mm-hmm. My mother worked hard so those lights never got cut off. You know, there were the times when I thought maybe she should have taken some public assistance, maybe that we should have had some Medicaid or some food stamps or something. My mother denied all of it. She would rather struggle, bump, and bumble along until she put it together for herself. When we knew that there were probably supports out there that she could have for herself to make things a bit easier. She was a prideful woman. Yeah. She didn't cry out loud, she did crying in the dark. She shouldered every single thing because she said, and she'll tell you today, I didn't have time to die. Mm. Law. You're 11 uh, and you're uh, raped at the age of 11. Uh, by the time you're 12, you're um, staying with Aunt Gerald. So tell me about Aunt Gerald in East St. Louis, Illinois. Oh, goodness. Aunt Jerry was, uh, <laughs> she was around you know, a woman, you know, she was large in stature. My mother was, you know, this, you know, small, petite, you know, ball gown wearing, you know, lipstick flashing. My Aunt Geraldine didn't wear makeup, never drank a sip of alcohol, didn't utter cuss words, but she'd make you think she had by the time she was done with you. (laughs) You know, she churched three times a week and carried all the children with her every time she entered a church house. Uh, she was the aunt who could look at you crossways at church and you'd sit up right. Mm-hmm. Um, she was that one. But when the school bell rang for me, I went to school in East St. Louis at 3.30. I had to be at home on our front steps by 3.33. The, the structure in her house was rigid. Mm-hmm. When, you know, there was no such thing as sitting around. You were cleaning something, fixing something, doing something for yourself to improve yourself in my Aunt Gerald's house. The only safety valve, the only escape from Aunt Gerald's wrath was reading a book. Mm-hmm. She wouldn't bother you and wouldn't let nobody else bother you if you had a book in your hand. And so I stayed with my nose pressed to somebody's book whenever I could. But there was nothing more terrorizing to me than to hear my Aunt Gerald call me by my whole name. Mm-hmm. That meant that there was trouble, that I had broken some rule known and unknown to me and that there was trouble on its way. Um, she did not fail in her discipline, um, not for a single moment. Um, so that was her early on. I didn't understand then the way I do now that she had known what had happened to me in St. Anne. And being the slight child that I was, she didn't think I could protect myself. And she was going to keep me shut up in that house or shut up in a schoolhouse or in a church house but that my little toes wouldn't touch the street without somebody grown looking after me. Mm. And so her her house ran like a check-in desk. Um, I can see that one of two ways, um, Goldie. On the one hand, I get her need to be overprotective of you, given what you'd you'd endured. On the other hand, as you well know, because you write the book, that can be awfully suffocating. Tell me how you navigated that terrain. It was absolutely suffocating, Mm -hmm. and I didn't get why it was happening um, until much later. School became my refuge, and so I had teachers there. I named her Peggy Lewis LeCompte and John Forehand, Gerald Nade. These were 
teachers in East St. Louis who had very few resources to educate black children with. So they met us where we were. We were in a gifted track, and they treated us like we were prize fighters. Mm. Like they were, you know, like they were educating the next Dr. King, the next Brother Malcolm. They were educating a new class of leaders, they believed. That turned out to be true. One of my classmates became the national president of the National uh, Bar Association, mm-hmm. black, do- black lawyers in the country. Turned out to be true. Another classmate of mine became first black PhD uh, in coal mining in Pennsylvania. You know, turned out to be true in so many ways that so many of us now have advanced degrees and have gone on to be captains of industry. Because we came through Peggy LeCombe's classroom, that became my escape. And so when Peggy LeCombe said, I want you to join this debate team, I need you to join this speech competition, I need you to write this poem or recite that essay, I did it because it meant more freedom at home. It mm-hmm. meant that Aunt Gerald would be proud of something, that this could make her smile. And very few things could. Yeah. But... No, I didn't mean to cut you off, um, but uh, since we paused here, when we come forward, um, I want to talk uh, in greater detail with Goldie Taylor about how she found her voice, um, the the journeys that she discovered keeping her face, her nose uh, pressed to those books, uh, the kinds of books she was reading, what her takeaways were from the books that she was reading. Uh, we'll talk more about these strictures of race and class and gender. Uh, in this post-Jim Crow America that she was growing up in, in East St. Louis, Illinois. Her book is called The Love You Save, a memoir. It's a good one. More of it when we come forward with Goldie Taylor after news, traffic, and sports on KBLA Talk 15. Our guest in this hour is Goldie Taylor. Her new book is out. It's called The Love You Save, a memoir. It is, uh, it's powerful. It's arresting. It's empowering. It's enlightening. It's inspiring. It'll make you laugh. It'll make you cry. A little bit of everything, as a good memoir should be. Uh, Goldie Taylor, you'll be happy to know that uh, I was checking our uh, our messages and socials during that break and got a, a word from some students who are listening who will be at Harvard tonight to see you. Oh, goodness. That is so <laughs> wonderful. I can't even imagine, you know, that me, little me, I'm still small, little me out of East St. Louis is going to Harvard to do anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so I'm no, glad I, that they are coming. It's sure. funny you say that. I, I, I felt that way uh, years ago. I When I finished Indiana University, uh, I applied to, to Harvard Law. I wanted to go to Harvard Law School and ended up getting an internship with Tom Bradley. Uh, here, mm. the late great mayor of this city of Los Angeles, that internship turned into a job offer, and I had to decide, am I going to Harvard Law or am I going to work for this historic black mayor, Tom Bradley, who I don't know how much oh, longer. I take Tom Bradley. Exactly. <laughs> that's, that's what I did. <laughs> I, I, uh, I went to Tom Bradley's office to work for him uh, and uh, uh, basically waitlisted uh, my dreams uh, for Harvard Law. And things took off here in Los Angeles. Uh, the rest, as they say, is history. Uh, and here I am uh, in a 30-year career all these years later. Never quite got to Harvard Law. But some years ago, many years ago, I was invited to lecture at the Harvard Law School. And so you can imagine the goosebumps I felt uh, when I walked uh, uh, onto that campus and into that uh, law school that has produced so many brilliant minds, uh, black minds included. And, and here I am being asked to give a major lecture at the Harvard Law School, and look around the room, and all these brilliant professors who I've interviewed uh, are in that room, and there's Skip Gates over here, there's Cornell West over yeah. here, there's Lottie Guineer over here, mm-hmm. uh, uh, Ron Sullivan and Charles Ogletree, uh, just everywhere. And, and uh, at the time, uh, at the time, um, 
uh, I'm blanking on his name right now. I know him so well. The black governor, formerly of uh, Massachusetts, uh, Deval Patrick. Uh, Deval Patrick. Deval Patrick was there. The governor came to see me. So it was just, I mean, I'm already scared as it is, right, to get this lecture. And I look out oh, and see sure. all these folk in the audience to hear Tavis Smiley lecture at the Harvard Law School. It was quite a night. Uh, and I, I survived it. I survived it and got through it. So I know what you're feeling uh, headed to Harvard. Well, you know. Yeah. Well, you know, I remember hard left. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I wanted to be, I wanted to be that open, that honest, you know, that bold. Yeah. And to see myself on the page in just that way. No. Hard, hard left was a huge inspiration for me. No, thank you for that uh, compliment. That was the very first of my of my what twenty four books. Now that hard left book is is yeah. uh, holds a, a special place in my heart, and it's nice to know that somebody actually read it and you remembered it. So thank you for that. But your book, let's Absolutely. get back to yours. Uh, yours is a good one. It's her uh, it's her debut a memoir. It's called The Love You Save, a memoir by uh, Goldie Taylor. Uh, and uh, I'm I'm all into it. Um, speaking of into it, let's get back into it. So uh, I, I want to learn more and hear more uh, about um, your discoveries, your escapes, as it were, because books uh, at their best allow us not just to be empowered and enlightened and encouraged, but they allow for a certain kind of escapism. So here your Aunt Gerald uh, really won't let your toes, as you put it, touch the ground outside of that house. Um, she's doing everything to protect you. While she's protecting you, you're also being suffocated. You find some solace. You find some escape in these books. Tell me about these books, what you were reading, who you're reading, and what your takeaways were from what you were imbibing. On Saturday mornings, my aunt used to, what she called, go up the highway. Mm-hmm. Up the highway was where people in East St. Louis would shop. You know, that was where the good Kmart was, and the good venture store, you know, the good mall was located up the highway. Mm-hmm. So she'd go shopping for groceries and such. And I'd sneak off to the library, which was about three blocks up the way at Ninth and State Street in East St. Louis. And I forged <laughs> my library card. Now, to get a card from the librarian, she knew how it was my signature. She did. <laughs> but this librarian would give me um, copies out of books. She gave me Du Bois. Du Bois. She gave me uh, James Baldwin. I was so excited to see Nikki Giovanni mm. on the page. I was so excited to see Maya Angelou's poetry on the page that I would run back to Mrs. LeCompte at school and say, look what I found, look what I found. And she said, okay, what are we going to do with this? And so that was an incident. I read about this in a book where I had, had Go Tell It on the Mountain, James Baldwin, mm-hmm. in a history class. And I was bored, and I'm reading my book, and Mr. Nade catches me and says, you know, you need to put that away and pay attention. And I'm like, well, I'm just reading the book. You're not teaching anything. No, how I'd say. Miss <laughs> um, <laughs> LeCompa signed an essay that night, 500 words, no mistakes, she said. In doing that essay, it opened up something brand new in me for James Baldwin. Mm. And so I began to follow everything that I could get my hands on that Baldwin had written. Um, my uncle brought home for me a paperback copy, the autobiography of Malcolm X. Mm. Brought it home. Uh, he was working at a, a gas station in St. Louis and, and found it at the station and brought it home to me. And so I was getting books any which way you could. Um in these writings, I saw a reflection of the condition that we were living in that I had not seen before. All I saw in the news every night were the shootings. You know, crack was coming, violence was there. All I saw were the bodies, the arrests. I was not seeing the complexity of the black spirit, the strength of the ancestors who built this country. I was not seeing that. I saw that in the books I was reading. 
Sure, they gave us Homer and Mark Twain and, you know, William Ernst Henley's Invictus. They gave us all those other things. But when the teacher put Margaret Walker in front of me for my people, that spoke to me in ways that Twain never could. Mm -hmm. And so I stayed with it because it became more of less of just a simple escape, but a flight. Mm -hmm. I was going to new lands Mm -hmm. in these writings. And so it pressed me to become a writer myself. So I began writing my own essays, giving my own speeches and competitions. And in that, I found a voice for myself. Mm. I wanted more than anything to speak about the condition that we were enduring, the condition, the human condition that we were living in. Mm. I wonder if you might say a bit more. Um, You've teed it up so beautifully. Let me just ask you a question expressly about it. This notion of being a young black girl and for the first time ever, being able to see yourself in the stories that you were reading. Black was beautiful in and for in of its own sake. Mm-hmm. That was the thing that I took away from these writings, that it was powerful in and for of its own sake. It did not need anything else to add to it for it to be powerful. And, and so that's what I took away from it. It pressed me to want to do even more. And so I would go digging for more. I would find myself back in that broken down library on Ninth and State. I'd find myself in the media center that we had there in our school. But more, I think, than that, um, for what what I know now about those teachings is Peggy Lewis LeCompte would be arrested for the book she gave to us today. Mm-hmm. If she went around to Santos, Florida, she would be facing the felony charge for the little library she kept in her classroom. Oh, Jesus. So that I understand was, yeah, I knew it was powerful then, but to people today, they see it as a threat. I, I say, understand why. Yeah, I say this all the time. I've said it already once today. Uh, now I'm saying it twice today. This is a three-hour program that I host every day, Goldie, and I am always amazed at the ways the dots connect. If you've been listening since we started this morning at 9 o'clock, you just heard Goldie make a reference that you heard Ellis Coase make in the first part of our show. The uh, first half hour uh, reference Dr. Lewis Gordon made in the second part of our first hour. And now here comes Goldie Taylor making a reference, putting a final point on what I've been saying all morning. Uh, and I couldn't have said it better than what Goldie just said, that if her teachers uh, who assigned these books and offered these books to her to read, then were passing those books out in Florida today they'd be arrested. That's how far and how fast we have fallen in this country. I digress. I'm sure you heard it yourself and I hope you've connected the dots to uh, the first couple hours of our program today. It happens uh, all the time around here and it never ceases to amaze me how uh, guests who are not connected cover the same terrain and making points in uniquely different ways. More with Goldie Taylor, author of the book, The Love You Save, a memoir when we come forward on KBLA Talk 15. I'm watching my time here, Goldie Taylor, and I don't want this hour to end without getting a chance to ask you this question specifically. Um, one cannot read your memoir and uh, one cannot hear this conversation and not hear the the deep and abiding love and respect you had for certain teachers, uh, for the librarian. And I, I, I want to underline that. Uh, I want to uh, double click that because it seems to me that teachers are not just under threat in this country, certainly in places like Florida, but they are still uh, still the most undervalued resource in this country to my mind. I was thinking during that break 
about my second grade teacher, Mrs. Graff, my fifth grade teacher, Mr. Jackson, my 10th grade teacher, Ms. Otis, my 12th grade teacher, Mr. Beal. These are four of the teachers I remember very well to this day. Mrs. Graff, my second grade teacher, lived well into her 90s, and I had become a national personality by that time. And every time I would go home to visit my family in Indiana uh, from Los Angeles, I would go visit Mrs. Graff even in her nursing home. And oh, what a time it was when she would tell everybody in the nursing home, my, my student, Tavis Smiley, is coming to visit me tomorrow. And by the time I got to the nursing home, there'd be a whole long line of people <laughs> waiting to, to, to yeah. greet me. I'm just going there to see my second grade teacher. But all those years later, and I should mention, by the way, she happened to be white. She was a white woman. Mm-hmm. But Mrs. Yeah. Mrs. Graff changed my life uh, in the second grade. And I hear so loud and clear in your conversation and in your book, the love and respect you had for those teachers. I say to teachers all the time that you're going to be remembered one way or the other. They'll love you or they'll hate you, but they'll remember you um, for the impact that you could have on their life. Having said that, talk to me about teachers. You know, we had a teacher, an algebra teacher in East St. Louis. We called him uh, soul man forehand. He was white man. Um, <laughs> uh, who was the most exquisite mathematician I have met in all of my days, Mm. who believed black children could get it, and he was going to give it to us. You know, there were teachers like Forehand who, you know, in in the comp, for teaching, that was their pathway into the middle class. Mm -hmm. That isn't true today. That we have teachers out here who are earning less than people who are your local barista at a Starbucks. Mm Mm-hmm. And so we undervalue teachers in such a way, and we handcuff them in such a way that they are unable uh, really to instill the kind of knowledge that we want to see, you know, in young people now. And so I am concerned about not just the state of our nation, but I think the state of teachers is a huge reflection really of where we are. You know, I had all of those investments in math and sciences and, you know, literature and such coming up such that I didn't turn away when Ellis Coates wrote Rage of a Privileged Class. I didn't turn away when Race Matters came out from Cornell West. I chased after those writings because of what the basis that I've been given. Mm-hmm. My fear is that we're not giving our children the same basis, that we're bifurcating education, that we are investing in some children and leaving other, other children warehoused, that we are not meeting all children really where they are because children in schools in general at large are so poorly resourced and that people like Ron DeSantis in uh, Tennessee, that they are doing more to break those systems down than they are to enrich them in ways that would enrich our children. Is it fair to say, Goldie Taylor, that books saved your life? Without a question. Um, What I could do with the written word, either consuming it or put it out, um, drove a career for me. It truly was my pathway up and out. But I have to tell you that I don't feel, and, and, and folks will say, will say, you know, you were exceptional. I take exception to that. <laughs> and there were other children who attacked their studies just as hard or harder, who embraced what was given to them, you know, harder than I ever could, were, were far more brilliant, um, who aren't here today. Mm. You know, my best friend, Sean Clark, was found dumped in a trash can, shot in the head in 1986. You know, I can count the number of people I came to growth with who aren't here to celebrate three grown children and grandchildren. And so I find something wrong with that, that, it, you know, putting in the work doesn't always mean there's an insurance policy that you're going to make it up and out. 
No. That bothers me. As it should, uh, and not just you. Our remaining moments with Goldie Taylor, when we come forward, you're listening to KBLA Talk 1580. You're listening to Goldie Taylor on KBLA Talk 1580. If you know someone in the Cambridge, Boston area, or if you're in the Boston area yourself, uh, she appears tonight at the Harvard Bookstore. If you know someone there, let them know. Uh, they should go meet Goldie Taylor tonight at the Harvard Bookstore if you're in the greater uh, Southern California area. She'll be at the L.A. Festival of Books on April 22nd. Put it on your calendar right now. I just put it on mine. Um, so write it on your calendar April 22nd, uh, just, a, just a couple months down the road. She'll be here in L.A. at our Festival of Books. Um, looking at my clock, about three minutes left here. Let me let me close, I think, with, with this Goldie Taylor. Um, I was thinking... A moment ago, one of my favorite movies, a movie called Broadcast News, given the business that, mm. you, that, that you and I are in. There's a line in that movie, Broadcast News, that says uh, simply this. Um, uh, it's a question, in fact. What do you do when your life exceeds your dreams? What do you do when your life exceeds your dreams? What's your answer to that question, Goldie Taylor? You pour it into somebody else. Mm-hmm. Quite frankly, you give it away. You know, my grandmother taught me that your gifts weren't yours for the keeping. Mm-hmm. That physical or intangible, you needed to give them away. And so you pour them into your children, you pour them into the neighbor's children, you pour them into any vessel that can hold them. And so that's what happens when your life, my life, has exceeded its dreams. You host a radio show like this one and you pour into other people. Yeah. You know, you write books, you you make the investments in your broader community, you volunteer at your local Y, you you take those gifts and you pour them into other people. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious now, um, since you sort of teed this up earlier, when your grandkids come to visit, uh, are you putting books in their face or are they bringing books with them? Are, are they reading the way that little Goldie was reading? <laughs> My poor granddaughter, who is nine, lives with me. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the teacher says, you know, there's a 30-minute reading assignment every night. Hers is an hour. Um, bless her. Because she can't get away from um, grandmama's books. But yesterday, I went to a performance at her school where she had been the playwright on the school-wide play. Mm. And so it is paying off already. My young grandsons live in Northern California. They are four and six. And when grandma comes to town, she has a sack of books with her. Mm. Um, It is the very gift that I gave to my children when I had very little else to give them. It is what I give to my grandchildren now that I have more to give. They say the apple doesn't fall far from the tree, uh, and uh, Goldie Taylor is a perfect uh, and pristine example of that of that notion. Her book uh, is called The Love You Save, a memoir. As you heard in this hour, it takes a deep dive into strictures of race and class and gender in post-Jim Crow America, specifically in East St. Louis, Illinois, but it offers, I think, a, a nuanced and a, an empathetic portrait of a family uh, that is clearly in a pitched battle for its very soul and uh, Goldie Taylor ain't done bad she ain't done bad in her life uh, again Goldie Taylor an honor to have had you on this program I look forward to seeing you April 22nd when you're here in LA for the LA Festival of Books have a great time at Harvard tonight you've earned it deserve it uh, uh, have a blast good to, good to talk to you thank you for the time so grateful I look forward to seeing you I look forward to it as well thank you for your time when we come forward after news traffic and sports the motivator Les Brown uh, is back with us today, as he is every day this month, continuing his exclusive uh, radio residency all month long on KBLA Talk 1580. So don't move. Coming up after news, traffic, and sports, the next voice you hear, as they say in the Baptist Church, will be that of the motivator, Les Brown, on KBLA Talk 1580.